Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest today is Jason Michelli. He's a United Methodist pastor. He's the host of the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast and the author most recently of Cancer is Funny. He's also a good friend. It was great to reflect on these texts with him. I give you Jason Michelli. Jason, welcome back. To Thanks the for having me, Scott. You are you are so uh, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. I didn't think you'd ever have me again. Oh, come on. Are kidding me? Are you kidding me? And you didn't even wait. You got that, the, she said, reference in inside <laughs> of 60 seconds. We've got some great texts this week. Exodus 12, for instance. Movement of the people. 1 through 14. Here we've got the the text that basically is the beginning of Passover. And this is the first Passover activity and action where the curse on the firstborn comes. Yeah. And this is, I would guess, if you're preaching among modern people who are are not pretending they're not modern, uh, this is a text that probably at least offends their sensibilities a little bit. It potentially is a text of terror, right? Yeah, yeah, I would think so first. first yeah, this is like, I mean, this is the text where um, someone like Brian Zahn, who likes to say that God is like Jesus and God has always been like Jesus, um, becomes problematic, I think, because the God of the empty tomb is the God of the Passover, too. Or, or the Jesus of the resurrection is the Jesus of the Passover and the death of the firstborn. So are you saying some people have a Marcionite tendency or not taking <laughs> I, the whole the whole witness of the Bible? I'm thinking it's a problematic distinction to make. Um that that doesn't that doesn't comfortably fit with what is the main thread of the Old Testament. Although you could say there's as much grace in the Old Testament, even Israel's calling, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just think it's problematic for for Christians who want to so distinguish Jesus from you know quote unquote a violent Old Testament God. Um, you still have the problem that you know this foundational story of Israel and the church. Um, begins with you know the promise that the Lord will fight for you, and yeah. The chariot and the chariot and the riders being swallowed up by the sea. Uh, I mean, it's a story about power. Um, you know that like Israel here in this chapter is like they are the passive recipients of instructions on how to remember their liberation. They are not the doers of it. And regarding the chariots, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean this is part of the reality of you know. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's a story about power, and so I, I think any Christian who wants to kind of make that Greg Boyd distinction about Jesus still has to understand, like, yeah, how is it that we understand the way in which God uses power in the story? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because Pharaoh before this asks, like, what's the deal with this God and this religion, and and I mean, I think that's always a question God's people ask. And, you know, it's not like pluralism was invented in late modernity, right? You know, there was religious plurality in the in the world of ancient Israel and in the world of the early church. I mean, pre-modern pl- plurality looks a little different than late modern plurality, but it's still there. And and this meal 
where there's the uh, the death of a lamb is central to Israel's identity and Judaism's identity today. And likewise, the the slain lamb, the meal that commemorates the slain lamb for the church is central, the new exodus. This is, in fact, in, in Luke's transfiguration story, mm-hmm. it's, it's Jesus going to Jerusalem. It's called his exodus. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so ha- you, have, you have this kind of, this meal. And it's interesting because as they're describing what's clearly a Passover meal, or so it's, it seems in the Gospels, they don't describe a lamb. Mm-hmm. Just bread and the cup, but they mm-hmm. don't make, no, make notice, make note of it. And maybe, Why would that be, Scott? Well, <laughs> because as John the Baptist says, behold, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the yeah. sin of the world. Yeah, I think it's Aquinas who says, um, you know, that this story makes Abraham a prophet. Um, you know, when he's taking Isaac up the mountain and Isaac asks, you know, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And he says, God will provide one. And that you don't get an answer to that question um, until this story here. Yeah, and it seems like there's interesting, like two interesting principles that emerge from this text. That like it, I, I don't know if they're if they make it any less uh, sensible to moderns, but there is a spiritual egalitarianism, right? Even though the fact that the Egyptians are the oppressors and the Israelites are the oppressed, the needing to cover the lamb that cover the door of the lamb's blood mm-hmm. is necessary for both. Yeah, and this is you know it's really interesting. I heard George Hunzinger one time that Bart. Uh, uh, expert at Princeton say, you know, my, my question for a lot of liberation theology is, can a victim be a sinner? Mm. And clearly, mm-hmm. that even now that God is intervening on behalf of his, the, his chosen covenant people, the children of Abraham, it, and they are oppressed at the hands of an imperial power, that does not negate, negate their need for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. that as, as the judgment comes, they wouldn't withstand the judgment any better than the firstborn. Their firstborn wouldn't withstand it any better than the firstborn of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think it's Bart who says that if Christ is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, then then everyone who is saved in human history is saved by Christ the lamb. Um, which I, yeah, and, and like, so, so, I mean, in that sense, we all are sinners saved by grace. Um, you know, and the thing about liberation theology, like, especially with this text is, um, you know, I think it's John Howard Joder who makes the, like, who points out how um, unique this story is. Um, so it's not that Exodus is a paradigm for how God operates in the world on behalf of the oppressed and the captive. It's that God does this this Exodus for this particular people for a very particular reason. Um, and so what what is important about it, Yoder says, isn't that it's kind of a template for how God acts in the world, uh, i.e. the you know preferential option for the poor. It's that God rescues this particular people for a specific vocation in the world. Yeah, I think that I think that's I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the other thing is there's a powerful picture of substitution here, mm-hmm. and it's interesting. In a sermon Tim Keller preached years ago in New York City, at the conclu- did it have, I bet he had three points. I don't know if he did. I think I he, he did. probably did. He said, "Do you know if you stopped an Israelite in the in the desert of Sinai and you said, what are you guys like? Who are you guys? What are you doing? You know what they would have said? They would have said, well, I was an alien in a foreign land under.'" penalty of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And even though morally and racially and ethically, I could not save myself, I was saved. Now I've been brought out and God is in our midst. And even though I know looking around here, this is a desert in a wilderness, he's taking me to the promised land. And he said, you realize that's what every Christian would say, should say too, because everything mm-hmm. climaxed on the day that Jesus became the lamb of God. 
He takes away the sins of the world. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, like, I mean, the whole idea here is that freedom, our freedom is purchased at a cost. Um, and, and we can, like, have moral qualms or philosophical qualms about that, you know, that purchase price. But we can't. I mean, like, the text is what the text is. Yeah, yeah and I think that people like Fleming Rutledge have helped us to sort of take, like, have helped us. I mean, we don't need to make it worse with picture with like theology is not really trinitarian and pits the father versus i mean they're they're Mm -hmm. but but like at the end of the day it doesn't explain away the scandal uh or the humiliation of salvation that you need a substitute yeah i mean because you know and it's all over the exodus story i mean here i mean the the point of the the ritual meal one of the points is is the cost of, of the firstborn um but you know but then think about you know when moses comes down and they're worshiping the golden calf and like and he tells them he's going to go back up and try to make atonement for them. Um, and so, like, you know, there's a sense in which Moses throughout this story becomes a substitute for the people that he's leading. That's my favorite passage, by the way, in the whole story where Moses is like, what happened? And Aaron's like, yeah, what happened? You know, it's the damnedest thing. He was the game of the gold. I like threw it in the fire. It's like, wow. Well, and then out came this guy. I'm as shocked as you are, Moses. And they'll raise their hands saying, we'll meet all your demands. But we'll shout from the bow, your days are numbered. And like Pharaoh's tribe, they'll be drowned in the tide. And like Goliath, they'll be conquered. So on to Romans. He was chosen for his slippery tongue. That's true. I like that. So on to Romans. we, We moved on without you singing the Prince of Egypt Miracles can happen if you believe in them song. We do, because we got, remember, we're keeping it on task. We just get under 25 minutes when you keep it moving. So here we go. Romans 13. You remember that scene in Bruno, the show from HBO, where, where, where Sasha Baron Cohen is playing this gay German guy and he sits down with the pastor, has the gay conversion ministry, and he says, well, right here, we're doing a Bible study on the book of Romans. And it says right (laughs) here, and and Bruno goes, oh, I love Romans. I love it. It's like, now tell me why being gay is so out this season. <laughs> um, so Romans 13, we've got Paul sort of running down the list of the law. And then he's, he explains, thir- verses 8 through 14, he says that, the, that at the end, love is fulfilling of the law, right? That that mm-hmm. is sort of the, that is the whole ball of wax. And then he has this interesting warning saying, you know what time it is. Yeah. It's now yeah. the moment for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer. And there's the other text, right? It's the first Peter sleepers awake. But that's really interesting. I mean, two interesting themes here that, that, that the point of the law is love. Mm-hmm. And that salvation is drawing near and don't fall asleep. Yeah, I think these are, you know, this is one of those Sundays where the lectionary passages all kind of fit in a nice, obvious way. Um, it's because the Holy Spirit knitted it together. Well, I mean, sometimes it's more counterintuitive and you have to kind of be figural in your reading. But but I think, um, you know, the whole point of the Passover meal is that um, Israel and then the church are measuring time in light of eternity. Um and that they are measuring time in light of their freedom. Uh, and, you know, and, and so like that, that, you know, that's the time of which Paul speaks in Romans, um, that we're now marking time according to cross and resurrection. Um, so I think it, it fits nicely in that light. And then I think, um, you know, all over Romans where Paul talks about, um, you know, putting on Christ, um, he uses the phrase weapons of rectification quite often. Um, and so I think there's this dynamic in Paul 
where we are now conscripted by baptism um, to be used as weapons by God against the power of sin with a capital S. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a sense in which we are now, you know, means by which God is defeating a, a different and more fundamental Pharaoh. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, too, because what happens when you fall asleep, right, in the transition from sleep, from being awake to, to sleep, sometimes you start dreaming as right mm-hmm. away as you fall asleep. And so, like, now you might have good dreams or, ple- or bad dreams, like you might have pleasant dreams or, or nightmares. But what happens is, at that moment, the dreams are more real than the reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think about some of the, even the sort of exhortation to obey the authorities that comes earlier, but, but he's not saying make more of them than they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, you know, if, if all sin is some form of like Jonathan Edwards, I think says that all sin is some version of unbelief. So much of it is probably like making the dream reality more real than the reality of what you're saying, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think, you know, part of Paul's wisdom is that we can be lulled to sleep, right? That it, the the imagery of putting on Christ implies praxis, you know? I mean, so that God gives the Israelites a meal for a reason um, with very specific instructions. Um, and that the idea of putting on Christ, obeying these commands, like that's, that is a way of life to shape us. Um, because in the absence of that, we will be shaped by, you know, by other gods. Yeah. With the time we have left, let's move on right to the Gospels, because this is a tough one. Is time going that fast? It is. It is. I mean, it really is. We're, 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 what's because... Scott, time... you're afraid our listeners are, have fallen asleep. Exactly. Wake up, everybody. So, we've got a text that I think is challenging to preach for people who are, uh, <laughs> who are, who are of... Because it's the most violated commandment of Jesus in the church. And also, I think very often, this is going to sound weird and counterintuitive, I think very often it's hardest to preach the gospel from the gospels for people. Mm. In that, I think... What do you mean by that? People oftentimes, you know, like, look, like, you look at, like, the texts in Exodus and Romans, for instance. It was, it's pretty easy for people to figure out, or at least it was for you and I, we came quickly to pointing away from our ourselves and into a deliverance that is the reality and and whatever imperatives flow from that come from that flow from the indicative first like the for, for primary uh, thing I is the deliverance you're, so you're saying it's easy to preach the law from the gospels yes cuz a lot of people preach the gospels as imitatio christi imitation of christ <laughs> as as opposed to what's the matter with particip- that, participatio participation in christ uh it, well, I don't know. It's uh, not... all right. Let's let's say that some you know well-meaning Wesleyan Methodists stumble upon your podcast because I've been on it, and they're but, gonna but, like. But we, but you repeat yourself. The well-meaning Wesleyan Methodists. <laughs> the road and to so, hell is paved with good intentions, baby. So, so even though you know we are a denomination governed by gossip, um, you know this, they're gonna hear this passage and think, I need to do this. And then they're going to get frustrated because they they won't well they don't do it. Um, so so what's the what's the problem with them hearing this as an imperative that they need to follow? Well, okay. So it, let me just say this: that it comes on the heels of a passage in Matthew that Stum- it, the stumbling block one. Well, there's the there's actually right before this the parable of the lost sheep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then after the parable of the lost sheep, and then this 
seemingly shifting of gears about somebody sins against you, confront them, then bring a group, then bring another group. And then if not, you know, they're out. Uh, <laughs> and then it leads to Peter's question of forgiveness and then the parable of the unforgiving servant. So I think it's interesting that uh, I will tell you, I have found Robert Capon's interpretation of this most compelling. You are a fan, I know. So what does he say? Do you know that guy, in addition to be, you'll love this because you're a very cosmopolitan guy, in addition to being a great Episcopal priest, and he was he was a food and drink reviewer and critic for the New York yeah. Times. That's so great. You should do that. Uh, he actually thinks that his words here are ironic. Mm. He thinks that 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 after he tells the story um, of this indefatigable seeker of the loss, a shepherd who risks risks everything for a single stray, um, he says he he follows this with a series of rules for limited forgiveness that could have been written by the com- committee for the prevention of wear and tear on the righteous. In other words, the whole thing is a setup. What Jesus is saying is about or what Jesus is about to say is so obviously at odds with what he has just been saying that even apostolic dummies will sense the incongruity. But when they try to respond to his obviously erroneous rules with emendations based on their inadequate grasp of what true forgiveness involves, they will be forced to recognize that they failed utterly to understand him. The gambit, as clever as it is, simple, goes like this. Uh, so Jesus says, so the shepherd seeks the lost sheep unconditionally. The disciples say, you don't really mean that as practical advice, do you? <laughs> okay, so I'll make it practical. Forget the first story. The shepherd is the new is the, in the new parable gives the stupid sheep three chances to get found. Then he gives up on it. Hey, maybe that's a little tougher than you meant to be. How about he gives it seven chances? <laughs> and then Jesus says, aha, I gotcha. How about 70 times seven? And how about checkmate? You thought that I didn't really mean unconditionally, huh? So our good friend David Fitch would say that that is a conveniently non-Anabaptist reading well, it's of a, Matthew 18. But interesting, too, like, let's say it's not ironic, right? Then he says that uh, treat them, if the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen to the church, let one be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Who are the friends of Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> okay. They're, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So that— that is a good way of, of pulling the gospel out of the gospel. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is it is interesting that, it's, it, that it seems like something ironic. And now, again, I think that it's not that practically there might not be something to, hey, you know, be direct. And, and, and hopefully what grace enables you to do is see yourself as forgiven and s- see them also as an object of forgiveness. Cause, like when you confront somebody, right? And like, look, I think I probably like you've done something that really frustrates me. Or, you know, like generally y- you might think you're right, but there's probably 10% or 15% or 20% of the response where like, yeah, they have some truth too. As, as like, I think what grace frees you for, it frees you from sort of self justification and for like, Hey, for their sake, for the sake of healing and for, I'm going to focus on the 20% they had right, not the 80% mm-hmm. I have on them. And like a mutual community of lost sheep. Uh, you know, and, and, and yeah, like, okay, so if you're out, well, guess what? You get to start at the beginning again and be welcomed back into the fold as a Gentile yeah. tax collector. I mean, it does seem ironic to me there. Well, I, I mean, because my initial reading of it is that, and how it connects to the lost sheep is that, you know, this is a practice, this is a practice geared so that we don't get lost through our own resentments. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's something to that. That that that, and I think even if you don't need the like, even if it is ironic, I think that part of the way we get don't get lost in our resentments is we remember 
that we're all the Gentile and the tax collector welcomed in. We're all the Zacchaeuses who wouldn't draw near. Yeah. I mean, like the practice of confronting another who has sinned against you. I mean, like the loosing there is is the loosing of it from you. Yes. Yeah. Because when you don't forgive, someone pays the debt. Either Mm -hmm. like if someone's wounded you, either you pay it down because you, you just internalize it and you get resentful and vengeful or depressed or you make them pay it and yeah. you know you're you're like the can of monte cristo i'm um, sometimes not that elaborate but i know harawas likes to point to this passage as as proof that you know christian nonviolence is inherently conflictual yeah i mean there there is something probably disruptive about it in that if if it is the sort of radical forgiveness it's sort of I mean, I think Capon's point here is interesting, right? Because because there is a sensibility to what Jesus says. Okay, three times. You get three strikes. Mm. Oh, what mm-hmm. about seven? What about, you know? <laughs> so he concludes it like that. He, then, he, then he goes into the unforgiving servant, right? Um, and he says this, and I think you'll like this, Jason, given some of what you've preached uh, of late that I've heard about. People have sent it to me. Actually, that you've heard about? Well, I've, I've heard. That's how I heard. That's how I got to your sermons. People said, hey, did you see Michelle's sermon? Um, but you have not listened yourself? I've read, I read it. I'm crying on the inside. It's all right. That's good. So he says that Capon says there's only one thing that where anyone will be finally condemned. None of our debts, none of our sins, none of our trespasses, none of our errors will ever be an obstacle to the grace that raises the dead. At most, they will be the measure of our death. And as soon as we die, they too will be dead because our Lord, the King has already died to them. But if we refuse to die, and in particular, if we insist on binding other debts upon them in the name of their of our own right life, we will, by not letting grace have its way through us, cut ourselves off from ever knowing the joy of grace in us. In heaven, there are only forgiven sinners. No good guys, no one upright, successful types who, by dint of their own integrity, have been accepted into the great country club in the sky. There are only failures, only those who have accepted their deaths and their sins and have been raised up by the king who himself died they might live. But in hell, too, there are only forgiven sinners. Jesus on the cross does not sort out certain exceptionally recalcitrant parties and cut them off from the pardon of his death. He forgives the badness of even the worst of us, willy-nilly, and he never takes back that forgiveness, not even at the bottom of the bottomless pit. The sole difference therefore between hell and heaven as that in, in heaven the forgiveness is accepted and passed along while in hell it is rejected and blocked mm-hmm. that's good yeah that'll preach there you go capon capon was is he, great is he alive he's dead oh. rob bell told me he called him once like because bell's a huge capon fan and he said i love your stuff that's great want to know what i'm working on now he, he's like yeah and he just basically for 35 minutes talked about the book he was writing and then said goodbye <laughs> That's cool. That's great. I wish I had met him. Jason, thanks. Well, you, you, I hope love wind for him. Love, love one. one. How could it not? Thanks for thanks so much for doing this, Jason. Thanks for doing it with me. Absolutely. Wink, wink. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or... Pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to my guest, Jason Michelle. You can follow Jason's exploits at tamecynic.org and check out his podcast, Crackers and Grape Juice. Thank you again for listening, and we will catch you next week. Until then, fare thee well.